From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. This is the Friday edition, mm-hmm. and it's another special edition. But before we get into it, uh, Zach, what have you been reading? You know, sometimes I vacillate when we do this bit, whether I should pick a, a story that, like, you know, inspired me or, or taught me something new. And most of the time, I think that's the direction I go. But sometimes you do have to bring up the, frankly, just depressing shit that runs on the site from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about <laughs> a piece about kind of the many disasters that have befallen the wine harvest in Italy, or at least the uh, the grape uh, growing season so far. And yeah. um, it's never fun to think about any region, any country uh, suffering you know, France, various regions in France have had some some pretty brutal vintages. Obviously, here on the West Coast, we've had fires and things like that. Um, so it was kind of sad, but not maybe shocking to see that uh, various parts of Italy, Sicily in particular, but others as well, have mm-hmm. really been getting brutalized this go this year. And I can't always tell. You know, this is not meant to be any kind of uh, comment on anything more broad involving climate change. I think that there is a there is an element of these disasters or these challenges that is undeniably new. I also think that some of this is like challenging vintages were such a part of grape cultivation for so long. And then there was sort of like a kind of like a weird eye of the hurricane period for a lot of European wine regions as like some of the like warming effects were starting to be more pronounced where it was like, Oh, like actually like, Right now, things are kind of nice, like we're getting a little more consistent ripening. We're not having really cold vintages that challenge us to to reach full ripeness. And now as we're maybe kind of moving out of the eye of that aforementioned hurricane, it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is why this is such a challenge. Like it's just hard to hard to predict weather and uh, it's getting harder. So, yeah, that was a bummer, but worth a read. Yes. How about you? Yeah. An interesting piece that we published recently um, from writer Sean Evans about um, kind of experimentation uh, at big bourbon brands. And I think a lot of us kind of know that the smaller craft whiskey brands, especially in America, are are a little bit more nimble and maybe able to experiment a little bit more readily. But um, this piece kind of focused on the bigger brands like Woodford Woodford Reserve and Buffalo Trace and... um, Wild Turkey and how those master distillers kind of approach experimentation and innovation um, to, you know, attract new drinkers, but also, um, you know, keep their loyal fan base um, interested in their products. So this piece was interesting to me. um, And yeah, I thought it was a good read for this week. I I feel like uh, your husband might disown you for not mentioning the Ode to the Bloody Caesar Oh yeah! I feel like that was right, like right down your uh, right down your alley there. Yeah, well, you know that was a good piece too. <laughs> can't say can't name them all every week. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what we wanted to talk about today is another piece that we published on the site about some news, and maybe our special guest can uh, tell us what it's about, Dave. Yeah, do you want to do you want to just kind of walk people through the basics of the story so far? Don't I? <laughs> Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks for having me, Joanna. It's always a pleasure to be on the Vine Pair podcast. Hello out there to all the loyal Vine Pair podcast listeners. Let's talk about Tilray. So the news that uh, Joanna is referring to is that just uh, earlier this week, on Monday of this week, so just a few days ago. 
Tilray, which is the largest cannabis company in Canada by uh, revenue, um, announced that it would be acquiring eight, count them, eight different beverage brands uh, from a from a little uh, from a little company that you might have heard of uh, called An- uh, Anheuser Busch InBev. So this is obviously a very big deal um, for a bunch of reasons that we're going to get into. I'm sure on the show. Uh, it was a big surprise. I did not see it coming. I didn't really hear any chatter about it. It seems like this was kept pretty tightly under wraps and it does seem like someone had uh, an exclusive in the trades because this stuff kind of all broke all at once um, with some great reporting over at, at Brewbound and at Beer Business Daily um, about this deal um, when it um, when it hit the scene on Monday afternoon. Dave, Dave, you said beverage brands, but really they're craft breweries. Well, that's so such a good and perceptive question, Joanna. Uh, it's seven. <laughs> it's seven craft brewery or craft beer brands, let's say, because a couple of them okay. are not actually attached to breweries. We'll get into that in a second. And then it's this fucking uh, sad, also-ran energy drink brand called Highball that ABI acquired <laughs> in, like, 2019 and just, like, gave up on. They had already they had already discontinued. ABI moved to discontinue it in May of 2023, it was, it's done. It's not a thing anymore. ABI says this is literally worthless to us. We're going to take the impairment charge. And then Tilray. Tilray was just like, like, wait a second. Actually, I'm going to pay you good and legal <laughs> tender for that instead. Uh, is that just because it has the word high in the name? Are we assuming? <laughs> yeah. They're contractually obligated to overbid on anything that has like a plausible <laughs> drug pun in it. Yeah. It's, it's possible. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the explanations for this deal are still kind of coming into focus. I have to say as someone who's been you know covering the space and watching and reporting on Tilray's push into the space um, over the course of the past few years, this is still a big and, you know, bold and ah, bizarre is too strong of a word, but it is out of, it's a little out of left field. The highball piece of the puzzle uh, is probably the most out of left field, followed by the, uh, the fact that uh, Tilray also bought shock top in the deal. Um, a, <laughs> just a redheaded stepchild, literally and figuratively in ABI's portfolio, orange headed stepchild, I guess it's more orange. Um, that, uh, was a failure to launch to try to blunt the effect of blue moon, um, basically from the jump and has kind of hemorrhaged volume since about 2017. Um, it's down like, I don't know, man, like 60%, I think Brewbound said in chain, chain retail over the course of the past couple of years. I don't know, man. So there's a lot going on here. I didn't know shock top existed still. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people are kind of coming to that realization. They woke up Tuesday morning and they said exactly that, Joanna. It's like, wait a second, (laughs) this thing, of course, Highball literally didn't exist and it got bought. So uh, we're in, un- we're, you know, where we're going, we don't need roads uh, because Tilray is at the wheel. <laughs> okay. So I, I know we're going to spend some time in a minute here talking about kind of what this means moving forward, but let's talk about what this might mean for AB and Bev and their um, now perhaps completely defunct craft wing. Um, you know, Dave, can you maybe explain, and I know you've written about this in a few different uh, pieces for the site, why was AB and Bev like 
so eager to just get the fuck out of what is, I guess, technically the sort of the craft beer industry. Like this is this is a lot of their quote unquote craft portfolio right here going out the door. The company has been pushing into what we know is like the craft beer segment. I think it's fair to call these these breweries and these brands, craft beer brands, a lot of diehard enthusiasts last decade would, would, you know, uh, uh, bristle at, at the idea of lumping these corporately owned brands in with, um, with independently owned ones. I'm sure the Brewers Association, if anyone there is listening, this is uh, a violation of, of their definition of craft beer, but I go by the definition of, you know, like the Potter Stewart, you know, it when you see it, uh, type of thing. And I think for for the American drinking public, this stuff looks like craft beer. And so let's treat it as such, at least for the purposes of this conversation. Um, they started, Anheuser-Busch and Bev starts pushing hard into craft brewing uh, in the U.S. in 2011 with its acquisition of Goose Island. And over the course of that decade, um, basically right up until, gosh, 2019 or so, um, they're, they're gobbling up, you know, one to two craft breweries a year goose island blue point elysian golden road carback and texas and on and on and on um their last acquisition that is ringing a bell for me is 2019 for platform beer co in ohio so they make these very very aggressive moves into the craft beer business um over the course of that decade it's very methodical it seems as though ABI understands what it's doing and what it's getting into. Um, and of course, as we know now, uh, the craft beer industry itself is slowing down over that period. And, you know, we're right around flat growth at this point. So it's no longer that attractive red hot segment that it once was that attracted ABI in the first place. And it also doesn't really seem like ABI did really know what it was doing. Um, or, you know, maybe there were parts of its strategy that made sense and others that didn't. It has not done a fantastic job of stewarding these craft brewing uh, brands that they've bought. Um, you know, it, you're looking at losses across the portfolio with the exception of Goose Island and Elysian. I think uh, uh, those are kind of their big standouts right now. Um, and those have had some success, but the rest of them, you know, are really not in wicked weed, uh, is the other one that's been doing pretty well. Um, but the rest of them really, they've just never really figured out how to plug it into these, this vaunted, you know, Anheuser-Busch InBev distribution network. They've never really figured out like why all of these brands can play nice together in a portfolio and don't cannibalize one another. And frankly, I, I don't think there's actually an answer there because I think they do, um, and there's just a lot of noise in the portfolio. They go through several corporate restructurings. They do, you know, uh, just earlier this year, in fact, they they laid off a bunch of people at the craft breweries themselves. And then in the corporate um, team that, you know, services the craft beer division, which they call, I think they call the high end. They've called it a bunch. It's the high it's end. It's the high end. They've yes. called it a bunch of different things at different points in the in the business. Brewers Collective was another one they called it. I don't whatever it's their their little craft brewing subdivision um so the broader narrative here zach which is what i you know have just kind of like blitzed us through is that uh they got out over their skis they i think went all in to or not all in but like they they placed a big bet on um on craft brewing and on their ability to manage the craft beer sort of 
value proposition within the big ABI behemoth. Um, and I think that bet has not paid off. Um, and I think that they are looking for a way to shift resources away from, you know, a flat growth segment and into uh, the, the growth areas, which are increasingly not, you know, traditional beer, not core beer or flavored malt beverages and uh, spirits based uh, ready to drink canned cocktails. I have to also ask this question because I think you're you're not wrong at all about the question of like, did ABI get kind of too deep into this market, not really have an idea in a long term sense of how to kind of, you know, utilize these brands, maybe play them against each other in certain ways. But I, you know, I think about like the the Pacific Northwest brands that are a part of this deal: Red Hook, uh, Ten Barrel, Winner Brothers, yeah, yeah. and I think about all of them as being like. I mean, they're of different ages. Uh, Widmer and and Red Hook were founded in the early to mid eighties. Um, Ten Barrel is a like mid two thousands brewery, but like all of them seem to me to have a sort of problem that even predated ABI's involvement, which is kind of like a lack of they kind of they kind of were scaled for a a era of craft beer that just has come and gone where mm. there was a lot of interest in some of these bigger or more successful or more established craft brands from around the country and i think like what we've seen seems to me what we're seeing in craft beer is a return in a way to like craft beer can succeed at a local scale but you just can't like no one really wants you know, craft beer from Oregon in Rhode Island or craft beer from, you know, whatever, South Carolina in Washington state. Like there's just not really, no, there's not a demand for that kind of stuff. And so these moves that were made with the idea of like, Hey, we're going to get international distribution. That's like where we're going to find an audience. I think it, it, those might've been moves that would have failed no matter who was at the, at the helm. I think that's right on. I don't think that there's reason to believe that um, you know, Anheuser-Busch like, like destroyed these brands. And I appreciate like the kind of redirect there. I didn't, I, I don't want to make it sound like they like uniquely like drove them into the ground, but like they struggled mm -hmm. to, for the reasons that you described, because I think their hypothesis getting into it was exactly what you just said, which is like, well, we can take this thing that's really popular in Oregon and we can sell it on the other side of the country because we have the, the logistical might to do that. It's like, well, yeah, you can, but at the same time that you're kind of like getting that operation underway, the American drinking public has decided like, well, they don't really want that because there's a bunch of beer on the other side of the country. They don't need it from the Pacific Northwest. So I think you're, you're right on. I think both things can be true there. And I think probably are in this case, I would, I would say that like Widmer brothers and Red Hook in particular coming to ABI through the craft brewers Alliance, which was a deal that, uh, ABI put together in 2020, I want to say they'd always had a stake in this sort of separate cohort of craft breweries. Uh, Kona was in it. Appalachian Mountain Brewery was in it. Red Hook and, uh, and Widmer Brothers were both in it. Um, this was kind of like, they picked these up. I, I think in hindsight, it's fair to assume that they did not really want these brands to begin <laughs> with. I think they really wanted Kona as their, as ABI's mm -hmm. investment in Kona, uh, trying to turn it into kind of a Corona killer, a lifestyle brand, you know, that Island paradise type vibe, um, that really demonstrates where their priorities were with that portfolio. I don't think that mm -hmm. they really had an interest. Um, you know, they had 
uh, some success with Big Ballard, which is uh, Red Hook's kind of like leading IPA. Um, Widmer's portfolio, I think, is just really challenging because it's, you know, the Hefeweizen is their, um, you know, what they're they're most known for. Mm -hmm. And those also speak to like the age of the breweries, which is something you gestured at earlier. Like these Widmer and Red Hook in particular are, are, uh, you know, sort of elder statesmen of the industry. Um, And that's not easy for any uh, brewery, whether you're owned by ABI or not, just ask Anchor down in uh, in San Francisco, which is currently struggling, you know, through what its future may hold as one of the oldest breweries in the country. So yeah, a lot of a lot of forces sort of aligned against a lot of ABI's portfolio. Um, but you know, for a lot of these companies, they they've owned them for six, seven, eight years. Like, I think you gotta you mostly gotta chalk up the L on their scorecard. Um, I don't think it's a situation where you can you know, you can say they were, you know, they were damaged goods coming in and they did what they could type of thing. Dave, you mentioned that, you know, now that they've kind of offloaded these brands, they can redirect those resources into some of the more popular categories or up and coming categories. But do you think that, I don't know, like of their existing portfolio, they need to do any kind of triage, especially like Bud Light stuff or, you know, they're going to kind of double down on their core brands? I mean, they absolutely need to do Bud Light triage. I think that's sort of the uh, the default there is, you know, that flagship uh, fl- flailing and failing over the course of the past four months has sort of informed or maybe accelerated some of these decisions. That's speculation on my part. I don't, I don't. Yeah, I was going to ask that too. Yeah. I imagine these deals take longer to kind of come together than that, but I mean, maybe I think that, you know, whether, <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. I don't think that, you know, you know, things start going bad for Bud Light in mid April and they get Tilray on the phone. And as ABI's executive, <laughs> Andy Thomas, who runs the craft division, the high end uh, tells it Tilray approached them about these brands, which is, you know, even more baffling. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, God bless him, man. We really yeah, want shock. Like, top. I can't emphasize enough how much I'm willing to pay for shock top. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, please just take, pick, pick a number and then add a zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think like, you know, in terms of where uh, these resources may go, um, I think one, you know, in the, in the best case scenario, um, Andy Thomas, I received a statement from uh, Anheuser-Busch's reps earlier this morning, um, and Andy Thomas, it's mostly boilerplate, but Andy Thomas's uh, quote here is, quote, winning in craft remains a key pillar of our strategy to lead and develop the premium segment. We remain committed to the amazing craft brewery partners in our portfolio and focused on working with them to lead growth in the segment, close quote. So, you know, there's not much there, but if you want to do a little bit ABI Kremlinology, I think you can kind of, one of the things is like from being a, I forget how they phrased it, like from being a category leader to leading growth in the category is like one of their big corporate missions. In other words, not just to be the like, you know, incumbent that's able to crush people with scale, but able to be dynamic and actually like generate growth based on, you know, innovation. So he's referencing that there. And, um, you know, he also, what is he going to say? He's going to say, we're not actually committed to these other breweries. Like they're all on, they're all (laughs) on the block. Like make me an offer. Like, you know, like, uh, (laughs) they may be saying that behind closed doors. They're certainly not saying it to me. So I think like, 
you kind of take that at face value and you say, oh, you're going to redouble your efforts around the craft beer brands that you still have. Like I said, um, Wicked Weed and Goose Island, I think, are, are performing decently well. Elysian uh, has performed well in the past and I think has a pretty strong portfolio there. So I think there's reason to believe that, you know, a more focused approach, you know, glass half full, the more focused approach to the craft beer segment within ABI will probably, or at least ostensibly could lead, you know, lead to some or yield some benefits for the remaining properties. Whether that Mm -hmm. comes to fruition depends on how much of this is lip service and how much of it is a real strategy. Um, and we will know soon enough, uh, how ABI chooses to prioritize these brands amongst its other offerings, like, you know, uh, neutral vodka seltzer and cutwater spirits and some of the things that they're more excited about, um, that have very little to do with the craft brewing segment and, you know, are kind of what people are trading up and out of the craft brewing segment for in some cases. Okay, Dave, I want to advance three hypotheses about Tilray's side of this deal. Yes. Yeah, let's talk about Tilray, please. And I want you to tell me which of these seems the most likely to be the correct uh, explanation for this move. So, okay. Hypothesis one. Tilray thinks, man, ABI really screwed it up with these brands. We think there's potential here. We think maybe just the sort of stank of abi on craft these craft beer brands you know kind of depress their market and we think just kind of getting them out of the portfolio will work okay that's hypothesis one yes hypothesis two tilray is a little bit more pragmatic and says okay none of these brands have been exactly killing it but some of them have pretty good name recognition still and we can kind of hazy little thing voodoo ranger it up in here a little bit kind of rework some of these uh, brands maybe repackage them kind of reinvent them, give it a new, a new gloss. And maybe there's a market. Obviously these are still pretty, like I said, pretty prominent, some of them more than others brands in the market. And that'll kind of, that'll kind of work for us. And we can kind of, you know, sell these, you know, in a different way than ABI did. Cause they just, again, maybe the didn't really know what they were doing and didn't have the wherewithal to kind of pivot as craft beer, the craft beer kind of industry and the tastes changed. Okay. Hypothesis three. Tilray is basically like, we don't fucking give a shit about any of these brands. And all we want is a route to market for our cannabis infused drink products and having, (laughs) you know, kind of being able to almost like, what is it? The cordyceps, right? Like we're going to just kind of like take over the host body and uh, use it to grow something else. Wow. Is that a thing that happened? I'm terrified of this option. This hypothesis is scaring me on a a physical level. Yeah. Dave, if you uh, and listeners, if you don't want to be freaked out, don't like look at YouTube videos of how the cordyceps fungus works. Uh, All the rage back when uh, was it? uh, The Last of Us was really popping. But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, so, you know, basically hypothesis three is functionally like they don't really care about any of this stuff as the product itself. And it's basically just. It has shelf presence. It's a way for them to kind of further get themselves into the American beer industry or American beverage industry, I should say, and leverage that, you know, distribution, that pre- that shelf presence to get the products that they're really vibing on, like the cannabis infused stuff more, more into the market as it continues to be developed. Okay. These are good. These are good hypotheses. Uh, let's see. I guess it's true. You could have a totally different one. It, you, you can tell me that you think they're all wrong. No, I don't think they're wrong. I think... So here's the thing. The last one I think is the least likely to be Tilray's strategy because they've struggled so hard for so long with 
um, waiting on federal legalization, this sort of, you know, waiting for Godot situation that they have kind of had to move away from hoping for as a business because it's taken just so much longer than anyone, you know, in a glass half full situation would have, would have hoped that it uh, was going to play out. And because, and I've been doing a little bit of reading on this. I did a column about Tilray's acquisition of the last craft brewery they bought, which is Montauk Brewing in, in uh, Long Island, and um, which was like twenty or like late twenty twenty two. And one of the things that I found is that beverage cannabis products, the the math is not very attractive on them unless you can really achieve like national scale. Mm-hmm. And obviously you can't achieve national scale right now because the it's not legal in all parts of the country. Um, so I think like to the extent that hypothesis three, wait, you know, it, it sort of tracks here, it tracks very indirectly in that, like, I, I do believe that they're, that Tilray is gathering information is understanding more about, you know, the way Americans, you know, think about uh, uh, leisure products, think about vice products, like, beer, you know, thinking about branding that resonates in Canada versus resonates in the US. Like there's a lot of like institutional knowledge that they're gaining, but I don't really get the sense that they are making this is the bet on, you know, beverage cannabis or even on cannabis, you know, widespread legalization right now. I think what this is is that they like like the alcohol business and are seeing a lot of like positive indicators from their ownership of Sweetwater, which they bought in 2019, 2020, Green Flash Alpine, uh, which they acquired a few months after, and Montauk, which they, you know, like I said, got in 2022. They, in their investor um, call about this, um, they laid out that they're about a third, a third, a third cannabis, uh, alcohol, and uh, like medical cannabis distribution um, is like their other big thing. So like they're, they're increasing the share of alcohol in their business because I think that they like what they're seeing out of it. I think the, I think the hypothesis that is probably most close to like what I, what I think is going on here is number one, which is that I think they think they can do a better job than ABI. And I don't, I did not, I leafed through their investor deck and I looked through the transcript of the call with investors. Um, and I, I don't really get the sense that they think that they have like a genie up their uh, sleeve or an ace. What's up your sleeve? Genie's not up your sleeve. A genie would be in, <laughs> in the, the bottle. bottle. Yeah, the ace, ace is up, up the sleeve. sleeve. Yeah, I don't think they have an ace. So thank you. An ace up their sleeve. <laughs> I think what they think is um, these brands have struggled in ABI's portfolio. ABI clearly wants out based on all the stuff that we talked about earlier in this conversation, all these indicators that ABI wants out. Let's approach them with uh, uh, a deal for some of their, their, you know, also ran brands in that portfolio. Um, because what we think we can do with it is not to like introduce a voodoo ranger or hazy little thing type of thing. No, no, I don't expect like massive innovation, you know, for them to drop. I don't, you know, they're also a big CPG firm. Like innovation is very difficult in that, uh, in that paradigm, right? Like that's kind of the problem that ABI is in in the first place. Like shout out to Bud Light next. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think what, what Tilray is hoping is that they were able to get these eight brands for a song. Um, like mm-hmm. they paid 85, 85 million, not 85,000. $85,000. <laughs> yeah. Like we could split them. Yeah. Um, 
No, uh, they paid $85 million for, for eight brands. Um, and, uh, so their, their, um, their business model is totally different and has to be way less lucrative for it to work in the same way that ABI's failed. And, you know, ABI was paying top dollar for these brands last decade when the market was growing close to, you know, it was growing double digits annually. And everyone was saying 20% of the beer market by 2020. That was the, that was the mantra in craft brewing that the tables have turned and now they're, they're able to get these things at bargain basement prices. And the thing that makes hypothesis one really work, I think is that they're going to stay based on the reporting I've seen from Kate Bernat and then Justin Kendall and, and Zoe Licata over at uh Brewbound. Kate's a good beer hunting. Um, and some of the other stuff I was reading in the investor deck, it seems as though they are going to, they are going to keep these brands in Anheuser-Busch distribution houses. And okay. so what Tilray has done is somewhat similar of a move to what Canarchy, what Monster did with Canarchy and when it acquired Canarchy in early, what was that 2022? I don't know, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, that they, you know, okay, you get Oscar Blues, you get um, Cigar City, whatever. There's some decent, you know, middle of the pack craft beer brands in there. But what you get is a fully built and ready to go turnkey distribution network that you can start just, you know, hammering your product through without having to do the tough legwork of, you know, uh, uh, you know, knocking on doors and opening accounts, you know, for all of those, for all of those brands and convincing distributors that there's, you know, there's still a moves to be made with these brands. So I think that's what makes it the most likely in my mind is that the distribution piece of the puzzle, um, is already built in and we've seen other like players in the industry, for example, monster, uh, make a similar move with Canarchy. So I think it's not that the brand's you know, totally don't matter. I think, you know, in theory, they're going to hope to do some cool things with them. I would imagine they'll double down on what's working, rationalize the skews that don't and, uh, you know, kind of try to achieve, um, you know, better unit pricing or, or, you know, uh, revenue out of what remains. Um, but I think, you know, based on what Tilray is saying to its investors and what we kind of know about the industry at this point, it seems most likely that they think that they can achieve, you know, what the industry calls synergies and economies of scale, whatever you want to call it to, you know, to supercharge these brands that they got for a song because, you know, ABI didn't want them anymore. I do think that hypothesis three is the end goal though. Like that would be the ideal scenario for them. No, like, you know, they want pen, obviously pending, legalization across the country like those thc we're seeing plenty of thc drinks already in cannabis drinks like when that happens they're going to be very you know well poised to kind of jump on that trend yeah i think that's true joanna i think like i I don't i don't yet get the sense that tilray is ready to just abandon being a cannabis company first um, right. I don't know a ton about the business other than what I've read of their materials and then obviously of coverage of them, but it does seem like that still remains like sort of true North for them. But that's the thing is that like, I don't know. Do you guys remember when you were growing up, like 
everyone like one of the urban legends was that like oh philip morris has like marijuana cigarettes that are like ready to go for as soon as like legalization occurs like <laughs> it's called like uh you know marlboro green instead of marlboro red right <laughs> and that was like a thing that i heard as a teenager and like Dave, you had way more fun urban legends than I yeah, did. Yeah, right. <laughs> the other one was that, like, if the teacher doesn't show up after 15 minutes, you're allowed to leave the classroom. So, exactly. you know, these were more, I would say that was probably one of the racier ones that I ever <laughs> heard. But my point here is that, that you know, there, there's been talk of that, of legalization being right around the corner and companies positioning themselves, you know, uh, smartly to take advantage of the windfall and be the first mover in the space for for two decades. And it hasn't really gone anywhere. So I think that that's not wrong, Joanna. I just don't think that I get the sense with, especially with this move and with its previous craft brewing acquisitions that Tilray has decided it's no longer uh, uh, going to wait for it to happen. It's going to go out and build another business unit that hopefully it can have success in, in the meantime. And if, and when it happens, Hey, great. Uh, Cause now we know all, all, you know, all this, all this other stuff about, you know, this market and we can, we can move fast. I don't think I've yet to see one, you know, this coming at the, I've yet to see any reporting and it's not mentioned in the, in the deck. Uh, Tilray has not responded to my request for comment. I, I kind of doubt they will. Um, but I would <laughs> love to hear from you guys. If you're listening, uh, David Um, but, uh, um, you know, I think like that's, I, I have not yet seen that any, any reporting that indicates that they're forfeiting, uh, part of the cannabis business in order to fund this purchase, which by the way, was done entirely in cash. Uh, so like they're not even taking on debt for this Wow, or will be done when it closes later this year. Um, so I think like, I, I don't think, I don't get the sense that craft beer is cannab- cannibalizing cannabis in Tilray's portfolio. Um, and so if they can do both and it seems like they can, uh, and they can get a bargain basement deal on all these brands and the distribution network, man, why not? Why not? Yeah. Well, Dave, as always, man, such a, such a pleasure to have you on to kind of unpack some of these things. We'll obviously keep an eye out for uh, the various things you write about this, whether in hop take or other parts of the site, your other ventures, fingers, great independent Substack. You should subscribe. Thank you. Uh, listen to Dave's podcast, Taplines. Maybe one day you'll be doing an episode about this acquisition. Maybe it will be that significant uh, looking back. Yeah, we may. And, I uh, think we, we might get some scrambled into uh, into production for next week. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Go check out Taplines. It won't, it, if you're listening to this on Friday, it won't be for another few days. We would love to have you. But thank you for having me. Of course. It's like I said, always a pleasure to, to check in with you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. And Zach, I will uh, talk to you on Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. 
I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.